But I do want to talk about, uh, I'm going to subtitle this, or subtitle this rather, The Things That Happened on the Road. And this is from the road to Emmaus. And the road to Emmaus is the moment on Resurrection Day where Jesus encounters two people walking from Emmaus, uh, from Jerusalem to Emmaus, a seven-mile journey. And the 24th chapter of Luke, most of it takes up the conversation that transpires between Jesus and the two disciples. And the reason why I think this is a work of the Spirit for us to do this message today is because it's been on my heart to do this message. It's communion time. This leads into communion. And to me, this is the moment where the church starts to get its first formation is this road to Emmaus, because the church is built on a resurrected Jesus. And we can say the church is built on the, the, the disciples, but the disciples had encountered pre-resurrected Jesus. And I want you to realize that there's a difference in encountering Jesus prior to the resurrection and encountering Jesus after the resurrection. And the road to Emmaus is two disciples who encounter resurrected Jesus. And the church is birthed in a resurrected world. And so in a way, this is like the pre-sermon to the lesson on the church because it shows us the encounter that people had with a resurrected Jesus. And so that kind of sets us up for where we'll go over the course of the next, literally God only knows how many Tuesday nights. We'll see where we land in that. Um, on the way there, I want to start with one verse that sets this title and I want to work this story. Uh, there's a few things I want to talk about before we read it. I'll tell you, we don't have a lot of extra extraneous texts and screens to work with today it's pretty much one straightforward story with a little compliment from the book of john but this is the story of the disciples on the road to emmaus told in a way in which we drop some highlights in and really focus on this thought from verse 35 of luke 24 they told about the things this is the two people that were on the road they get back to the disciples and they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. So they literally go into the room of the other disciples and they testify, listen to what happened to us on the road. And they talk about how they broke bread with Jesus, which by the way is communion. And communion is the, sac the sacrament we've been holding on to for 20 centuries in the church. And I'll talk about why as we conclude today. Why are we holding on to that sacrament? But it's fascinating to me that two of the first people to encounter resurrected Jesus will then know who he is when they break bread with him, which sets the precedent for revelation for all of us, that when we break bread with each other, we get to know each other. When we break bread with Jesus, we get to know Jesus. And there's no greater truth than friendships are made over food and wine. Friendships are made over fellowship. They're made over interaction, not lectures, interaction, where you get to talk back, you get to ask questions, you get to laugh, you get to share because then you really find out who people are. And this happens on the road to Emmaus with these disciples. But I really want to take sort of as an allegorical statement, the things that happened on the road, because for me, Christianity should be about the journey, not the destination alone. Let me clean that up. Christianity should not only be about the destination. It should be about the journey on the way to the destination. We are not in the ticket punching business. Have you got your heaven ticket punched? Have you got your get out of hell card punched? And once you get that punched, then you're in the club. That's not what we're in. That's a miserable club. That becomes the haves and the have nots. That's us versus them. That's I got my ticket. Do you have your ticket? Oh, let me see your ticket. Mm, I'm not sure that's a real ticket. 
because then it starts bringing up theological doctrinal questions like how did you how did did they baptize you this way what kind of church did you go to what do you think about this little finer point of theology Ooh, our pastor warned us about people like you and the next thing you know your ticket not even valid. That's a phony ticket. You, you, you got that from a scalper. You're not really in. And we start to play gatekeeper to who gets to go. Okay. I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know what the next side looks like. I know that when we're absent from this, we're in the presence of the Lord. I mean, let him take care of that. What I do know is that we're on a journey together. We're living life together. We're laughing together. We're crying together. We're, we're, we're questioning together. We're wrestling with one another. Sometimes we fight with each other and all of that's good. That's what makes us human. It's what makes us honest. It's what makes us family. Because you don't do that with people you don't like. I mean, you, you, you don't stay with it. You just give up on them. But when you love people, you contend with them and you grow with them and you question with them. And, and that's what Christianity is. That's what this faith is. And that's part of what you, you and I are finding so mutually beneficial about our meetings, about encountering Christ together is because this is our road, man. Now your road doesn't look like my road. It shouldn't look like my road and it won't look like my road. It, your road has your own twists and turns. It has moments that you remember what you did when you came around that curve. You remember what that looked like that day. You remember what you felt like during that season. You remember that pain. You remember that laughter. I don't have your road, but we're on the same destination and our roads sometimes merge. And for certain seasons, you even walk the same road with people for a little while. And that's the beauty of this. And what happens on the road becomes the story of who we are. Um, destination is important, but think of it this way. I, I don't, I'm not trying to build some doctrine out of this, but this is kind of how I look at life. I kind of feel like this is the lobby of heaven. Like we get to taste and see that the Lord is good. We get to taste the other side. And if we let him live his life through us and we get to see what it would look like you know, to, to let the kingdom live out of us. That's what we're all hoping to do. But this isn't it. This is the lobby to where we're going. It's not where we're going. And I wonder if when we get over there, this will all feel like this was a dream. And we finally woke up, like when we actually fall asleep to this and we wake up to that. And maybe that's just a greater metaphor for what really happens when you meet Christ. It's like the stuff that was you before you knew him. It's sort of a dream. It's not really who you are anymore. You can't, it's not tangible. You can't really put your finger on it. And you start to wake up. Well, the more I think in those terms, the more I realize that I've actually had multiple dreams. I, I feel like I've woke up more than once. I mean, I met Jesus and woke up, but I've, I've met him again. And this is also why I don't preach a second coming of Christ. Because I think in reality, Christ has been showing up. He's shown up like 30 times in my life. And I'm being generous. You know, I don't know maybe 300, maybe 3,000. And I mean in genuine ways. True revelatory ways where it wasn't, I don't have to wait around for him to be there. He is there. And, and, and I don't, whatever he, he does in a physical manifestation of returning on the planet is in the purview of God. But I know that in my own spirit, there's been multiple arrivals of who Christ is. He's met me on the road. He's met me on the road when I was running from him. He's met me on the road when I was confused about him. He's met me on the road when I was scared of him. He's met me on the road when I've denied him. Uh, he keeps walking the road with you is the point. Even when you run off side trails, he keeps walking down that road because you're always on a journey. So he's always on a journey with you. Make it matter. Make that journey matter. The fact that you're journeying down this road and it always starts. Here's, here's something I want us to try to take ourselves away from. 
and into. Take yourself away from the idea today for just a moment, for just this short little message. Take yourself away from the idea of your individual salvation, okay? Your individual righteousness. You have it. Praise God. But let's put it on the shelf for a second. For today, I want you to realize that the Emmaus Road story is not a solo artist. There's a reason Jesus shows up to a couple of people, because this is how the church starts. It starts in community. It doesn't start by yourself. Now, your salvation is yours. Enjoy it. Love your identity. Enjoy your righteousness you have in Christ. He loves you uniquely. He loves you specially. He might even love you especially above all others. Or at least it's okay for you to think that because that's how much your father loves you. But you don't exist in a vacuum. You're not by yourself. Your encounters with Jesus are better experienced in community. And so along this road, we experience what, some of what they experience along the road. Here's what I want to do. I want to start in verse 13 of the Emmaus Road experience. I'm going to read from Luke 24, 13. We're going to read down through 32 before we jump to any other passages. We're going to take pauses along the way. I want to point out some highlights in this story. If you've never really dug into the Emmaus Road story, I really want to encourage you to reread 24. When you get home, Luke 24, take your time, breathe it in. I don't want to overstretch it. I don't want to over-exaggerate, but I've preached a lot of sermons, and I can tell you I'm really close on this. There might not be a single chapter in the New Testament that has more applicable things happening for you as a follower of Christ in the modern world, reaching back into the Old Testament, reaching up 20 centuries into the church, than the 24th chapter of Luke. It's a resurrected Jesus encountering real people. You have a resurrected Jesus, and you're a real person. It's a resurrected Jesus encountering real community of people. You're a community of people. It's a resurrected Jesus encountering confused, scared, and doubtful people. Guess what? Confused, scared, and doubtful people sometimes. It's a resurrected Jesus blinding people to what they were so he can open their eyes to what they could be. That happens to you and me. It's a resurrected Jesus appearing to people who get a chance to go share that gospel with the world around them. Doesn't get any better than that. And so let's kind of work through this story just a little bit, starting verse 13. Behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. That's a pretty straightforward geographical description. But keep it in mind that they are on a seven-mile journey. And if you want to read something into seven, the Hebrews did. Maybe it's a perfect spot to go, seven miles. It's a complete journey from one spot to the other. And they talked together of all the things which had happened. By the way, the things that had happened, it's Sunday. It's been the cross and the burial, and they've heard the body is no longer in the tomb. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know. And let's stop right here and really focus on two things from this passage. I've already given you the geography and the setup, but there's really a couple things that kind of jump out at me. Encounters, look at verse 15, encounters happen in community. While they conversed and reasoned, Jesus drew near and revealed himself to them. And there's something to be said for what happens on the journey along the road when we allow ourselves to reason and convene together. And as these two begin to discuss this, Jesus made an appearance in who they are. Again, I want you to put that personal relationship with him on the shelf. You've got that no matter what. But there's also a relationship that we have with Jesus that is birthed in our conversations. It is birthed when we become real with each other. It is birthed when we get honest with each other. It's birthed when we start asking questions of each other and we wrestle things out. You might find people can be abrasive. You might find it difficult to, to sort of fit into that slot where you belong with people. That's okay because in that we have grace and in that is where Christ does his work. And that is why we have revelations of Jesus 
in community that we cannot have outside of community. You'll learn something about him in your neighbor that you won't learn in your prayer closet. I took a, it's taken me a long time to understand this because for a long time I thought, what do I need other people for? I got me and Jesus. We got a really good thing going. I know how to listen to him. He listens to me. I know how to hear words and sermons and get up and preach them. What does it matter if I have other people? And I've started to realize that you cannot have an Emmaus Road experience walking the road by yourself. This is the kind of Jesus you only encounter in community because he waits for us to converse with one another and that Jesus arrives in community. And so they only happen there. And then verse 16, he their eyes were restrained so that they did not know us, know him. And it tells me that Jesus is in the business of blinding us to the things we do not need to see. All right. Um, this is that moment where in the book of John, Jesus says, you remember the man born blind from birth? And Jesus tells him, spits on the ground, tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And he does. And then Jesus finds him in the temple later and says, the son of man came to, to make blind men see to give sight to the blind and to make those who can see to make them blind. And yet you don't ever see Jesus in the gospels making someone blind, you know, touching a guy's eyes and going, ha ha, you can't see. So why does Jesus say that? And I think this is an example. And I think Saul on the road to Damascus is an example. He sees the bright light of Jesus, the revelation, which by the way, he doesn't have a revelation of Jesus by himself. He's with his peers. And in the middle of his peers, he has a revelation of Jesus and his eyes are blinded because I think what happens is when we finally see Jesus in the eyes of our neighbor, we start to be blinded to the things that we used to see in our neighbor. We said this a few Tuesday nights ago. If you spot the speck in your neighbor's eye, Jesus doesn't say to you, be careful that you don't have a beam in yours. No, Jesus says to you, when you spot the speck in your neighbor's eye, you know you have a beam in your eye. It's why you're so good at finding specks. It's because it's got this beam hanging out there that is going to look like a speck everywhere you look. But notice that when the community encounters Jesus, he starts to blind us to stuff we don't need. And I'm not talking about covering abuse and covering violence and covering up error because we've had enough of that foolishness happening in the church where people just sweep stuff under the rug because they don't want to hurt the leadership. Oh, we don't want to touch the man of God. Well, I don't care if someone was sexually abused or physically abused. We don't touch the man of God because that'll bring the house down. That's not what we're talking about. Jesus doesn't blind eyes to hurt and violence and pain. You don't ever invert the kingdom where the kingdom goes, oh, you know, it's best not to talk about the bad stuff. We only talk about the good. I'm talking about blinding us to who we are no longer blinding us to what we are no longer. And so sometimes we need blinded to be in Saul so that we can be Paul. We need blinded to the part of us that, that where our identity is not in Christ or not in his righteousness. And only then can we be blinded to what's wrong with our neighbor because it's easy for me to find what's wrong with you. I need encounters with you in Christ so that I'm blinded to what's wrong with you, so that my eyes are closed to what... And when I say what's wrong with you, I'm tongue-in-cheek. What's wrong with you? There's nothing wrong with you that isn't wrong with me. But I need blinded to only being able to expose what I see as wrong in you so that I can see what is right in you and see what is right with the Christ in you. And I find it amazing that one of the first things the resurrected Jesus does is show up in community and blind people. Wow, 
And, and again, not blinding him and cover up because the blinding here is so that they don't see him so that he can reveal himself to them through the scriptures. But there is something to be said for that blinding off of who I am so that my eyes can be open to who he is. And he said to them, give me 17. He said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? And then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? Now, interestingly enough, this text is the only indication we get as to who these two disciples were. So just to help you, Cleopas is not one of the 12 because we have Peter, James, John, but no Cleopas. Um, whoever Cleopas is, the other disciple is not named. You also notice that it doesn't ever call them two men. I kind of think that the two disciples on the road to Emmaus are husband and wife. I think it could be Cleopas and his wife, and I think it's very possible that Luke 24 is replaying the garden. The first Adam and Eve converse with God in the cool of the day, and they eat from the wrong tree and their eyes are blinded, or their eyes are opened rather. They're blinded to the life and they're open to the death. And then when Jesus comes out of the grave, he meets a new Adam and a new Eve, a man and a woman walking down the road. And the conversation that he has with them blinds them to who they used to be so that he can remove the scales to be who they are. And I kind of feel like Luke 24 is redeeming the Adam and Eve story in this fashion. That Adam and Eve, their eyes were blind at creation. Did God want Adam and Eve to stay blind forever? What's the point of that story? It seems to me that if their eyes were opened by eating from the wrong tree, what would have happened if they had ate from the right tree? So it it tells me that a God that makes you blind has a plan to make you able to see and that if you shortcut his plan to make you able to see, you'll never see correctly. And the human family doesn't see correctly because we shortcutted a relationship with God and we started to build our own knowledge. And that's what we all do. In fact, we do that out of the gate. We don't go straight for a relationship with God. We go for a relationship with knowledge. Get smarter, get stronger, get more powerful, get more aggressive. Step on who you got to step on. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we've opened our eyes to a system that we were only supposed to be able to see through the lens of him. So what if Adam and Eve had let God open their eyes? What would have happened? I think they would have done it at the tree of life, where life brings them sight. Luke 24 is God getting a chance to do it again. It's God taking a couple, Cleopas and his wife, Adam 2.0 and Eve 2.0. And it's God encountering these two and then showing them himself through the scriptures. And their eyes are blinded in the same way that Adam and Eve's eyes are blinded so that they can be opened the right way. And isn't it incredible that the right way, according to Luke 24, is to show them Jesus in the scripture and then eat bread with them. Which tells me that wherever I'm blind spiritually, my answer is a Jesus encounter in which I partake of his body. And where? In community. And so there's something to be said for us growing in him together, fellowshipping with the body and blood together so that the scales fall off of our eyes and that they fall off of our eyes together. Verse 19. And Jesus said to them, what has happened? What things? They said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. This is a good description of Jesus. This is also one of the few times in the Gospels that someone calls Jesus a prophet. And they nail it because he is. In fact, Moses said the prophet's coming. And most people thought that was like John the Baptist. But Jesus comes as the ultimate prophet. What is a prophet? It's the mouthpiece of God to the earth. 
Remember, prophets speak from God to people. Priests speak from people to God. Jesus is both prophet and priest. He's prophet in that he is the voice of God to man. He's priest in that he is the voice of man to God. That's, a, that's a, some deep theology and worth exploring, but this is a pretty good start here. The prophet had come, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. Chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death. One of the early thoughts about the cross here is that the chief priest killed him. There's no mention of Rome here. That's a development that comes into the book of Acts. And they crucified him. Oh, time out. You need this. I tell you that Rome gets put into the story in the book of Acts. You might think, well, how do you know they were written that far apart? We'll talk about this as we go in the next few weeks. But Acts is really Luke part two. I mean, it literally opens with him going, I wrote you already about Jesus and here's the next part. So Luke's, Luke's full like story unfolds. And as it unfolds, the full story of Jesus unfolds into the church. So it starts pre-church, then it unfolds into the church. And you get all this new information that starts piling in there. And so in the early iteration, it's Israel killed Jesus. That's even Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. You killed the Lord of glory. And then as it goes, it becomes Israel and Rome killed Jesus. And then as it gets to Paul, way out here at the edge, at the end of the first age, Paul's going, Paul and Peter are going, he took our sins into his body on the tree. And they're, they're kind of going, mm, maybe it wasn't the Jews. Maybe it wasn't the Romans. Maybe it, was, maybe it was me. Which is quite a development to go from, you killed my friend, to, you all killed my friend, to, oh no. I think I killed my friend. And that becomes the faith. Because you don't follow Jesus because the Romans killed him. You follow Jesus the day you realize that you did. And that the best way to live with him is to lay down and die there. And then you go, I can follow that. So the great revelation following Jesus because I'm culpable in his crucifixion isn't I killed him, stabbed him, put him on a cross. No, it's I'm the reason he went. I need to get up there with him. And the early church starts to develop that. That's what we'll see as we watch church develop in the book of Acts is the theory of salvation got broader and broader and broader until it didn't get broader until it included all of the them. It got broader until it included all of the us. And then that becomes the basis of our faith. So you can't shake that. And if you keep that as part of your faith, you'll never find stuff to judge other people for that you don't see in you first because you'll realize that it wasn't the other people that did it. It was always you that were culpable, you that were a part of it. So this becomes pretty vital. But we were, watch this disappointment in verse 21. We were hoping that it was Jesus who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. I think verse 21 is so fascinating in its level of disappointment. Listen how disappointed they are. In verse 21, we thought he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And besides all this, today's the third day since this thing's happened. So he's been in there a while. We're disappointed. The things that happen on the road of your journey in Christ is you're going to go through pockets of disappointment with the Lord. And that's okay. 
In fact, I think you ought to articulate them. You ought to let the Lord know about it. Because if you're not honest with the Lord, who are you going to be honest with? You're not going to be honest with yourself. So be honest with the Lord and tell him when you're disappointed. He's big. He can handle it. He won't run from you. Our disappointments are a lot of times because we have expectations. Expectations that maybe are unrealistic. Expectations that, are, that were not founded by the Spirit. Sometimes our expectations were founded by other people. They weren't founded by the Lord. So we're not listening to what the Lord tells us we're going to do. We, we listen to what other people are going to tell us we're going to do. You come up in charismatic churches like me, you're always listening to prophetic voices. People prophesy over you and go, you're going to do this. So you listen to that and you kind of run towards that for a while. It wasn't the Holy Spirit that told you that. It was somebody that told you that. It, it could confirm something the Spirit said, but not always. And so you find yourself sort of drifting towards these other voices and other instructions. And, and that leads to disappointments. Why are they so sad? They thought he was going to redeem Israel. What did they mean? It's easy to get lost right here. Because when we read this, this is easy for me to go, oh, well, they were just wrong. He did redeem Israel. No, those, those, those dorks, they just didn't know it because he hadn't risen from the dead yet. They didn't know he was alive. Their idea of redemption was not saved in their soul. Their idea of redemption was set free from Rome. And they went, we're disappointed in him. And so if they could be disappointed in the Jesus they could see, is it possible that you're ever going to be disappointed in the Jesus you don't see? Well, Yeah. Especially when you start to build the Jesus that looks like your favorite preacher or looks like your church or looks like your pastor until they disappoint you, and they do. Is being disappointed in other people cause for leaving Christ? Well, it's caused a lot of people to quit church. It's caused a lot of people to quit the faith. I don't see one person in the ministry of Jesus leave Jesus the night Judas leaves because Judas left. You know, it's not like Peter, James, and John go, oh boy, Judas is gone. We're out of here because I'm really disappointed in anybody that can't keep following him. And so it's not about who else follows. It's not about those peripherals. It's about hearing that voice and following of ourselves. All right. I will do, I'll, I'll keep that disappointment on the back burner because that's part of what we do on the road. 22. Yes, certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. There were women disciples, by the way. And also... For female empowerment, the first recipient of the gospel of the resurrection is female. And almost exclusively, the first believers in the resurrected Jesus are female. Which is interesting, but not shocking. Because our, our story starts in the garden with a man and a woman. And we shouldn't be surprised to watch God do his redemption in that manner. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. Empty tomb. This is resurrection theology. 25. Then he said to them, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And Luke 24, 27 becomes our benchmark for how to read the Old Testament. Because what we do is we start to go through that old Moses and prophets. That's much of this back here. And we start to look for the stuff that talks about Jesus. It doesn't say he expounded on every scripture the things concerning himself. Because not every scripture in there is concerning himself. But he ignored the ones that didn't concern himself so that he could bring himself to light in the ones that did. And so the way to find God 
is not to go into the Bible to look for God through story. It's to go into the Bible to look for Jesus in the story, and then you find God. Without Jesus, you have stories about God. With Jesus, you start to understand the stories about God. And where the stories don't inform you about Jesus, here comes newsflash, where the stories don't inform you about Jesus, skip the story. I don't mean you don't ever read it, but quit taking it as some theological basis. If you can't find Jesus, move on. If you keep reading it and you still can't find Jesus, keep moving on. Keep going back and looking for Jesus. If he never shows up, follow it away in the stories in which you can't find God through Jesus. And if you say this, oh yeah, I can't find Jesus there, but I think I can find God. Eh, wrong. That's not God. Jesus is what God always looked like. Jesus is what God looks like. Jesus is what God always will look like. It is not, this was God. He wasn't playing fair. He's pretty rough back here. Here comes Jesus. Boy, I'm so glad Jesus came. Things get better. Whatever you think this was, you're wrong. This is God, Jesus, and you need to put him here. And if you can't find him here, then just accept that maybe that's one of the scriptures he didn't expound in Luke 24. I'm okay with that. That's from Jesus. That's Jesus going, I'm going to open the book, and if I see me in it, I'm going to preach it to you. So if I'm reading it and I can't find Jesus, you go, okay, maybe that was one of the scriptures he left alone. I honestly think if we would do this right here, just this, we could fix a lot of what's wrong with our Bible interpretation. A lot of it. If we would just start where Jesus started and went, let's just go look for Jesus. And where we don't find Jesus, don't sit and fight about it. Don't try to figure out what God was trying to do. Just move on. Just move on and go. And it's okay then to go, I don't know what that story's about, but I don't see Jesus there. And you know what? If I don't see Jesus there, eh. And I think we've messed up because we'll hang out in those stories and try to come up with some principle and, or, or try to explain God through some lens where he had to do this this way. I even used to teach that. Oh, the reason God's killing people back here is because God was in a covenant where he had to kill people. Listen, I don't care what kind of covenant we're in. I'm not killing people. And God's better than me. My wife and I are in a covenant. But if my wife comes to me and goes, I need you to kill this person. I'm not killing them because we're in covenant. And I think we're insulting the nature of a loving father by going, oh, God's got to slaughter a bunch of people because he's in an old covenant. He's forced to. You're not forced to murder because you're in a covenantal relationship with someone. What's that mean? So stop trying to put it through covenant lens, eschatological lens, testamental lens, old context lens. Put it through the Jesus lens. That's the only one that matters. We're not followers of Moses. We're followers of Christ. So let Jesus show you how to read the Bible. You go, start with Jesus. This is also why I don't start new converts in the Old Testament anymore. You weren't saved in the Old Testament. Go look at Jesus. This is, who you, this is who you admire. This is who you're following. Go watch Jesus work. And as you watch Jesus work, be impressed. And especially watch the resurrected Jesus go to work in his church because that resurrected Jesus, it's the purity of what this kingdom looks like. That's the Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Resurrected Jesus gives you the authority to look through the scriptures and find the stories concerning him. Next, 28. 
drew near to the village where they were going and he indicated that he would have gone farther and I think the reason is because Jesus will always go farther. But wherever you need to stop and take a break, he will stop and take a break because this is your journey, not his. All right? He's got all the time in the world. So if you're wore out, he'll stop and take a break with you. If you need a rest, he'll stop and take a rest with you. In fact, if you need a rest, stop and take a rest. Take a break. God's not pushing you. He's not a taskmaster going, oh, we got to go farther than this. This isn't far enough. He'll stop wherever you stop. He'll rest wherever you rest, even though he can always go farther. But they constrained him and said, abide with us. It's towards evening and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread. He blessed and he broke it. And he gave it to them. Here comes, now, this is a repeat, guys. Verse 30 is a repeat of communion. This is a moment where the resurrected Jesus is taking the same, it's the same motion that we had in the, what we call the Last Supper, where he snaps that bread in half and he lays it across that table. We don't know if Cleopas and this other disciple were in that room that night. There's no indication they were. But he's revealing himself universally in his early church by the breaking of bread. And as he breaks this bread, he blesses it, he broke it, and he gave it to them because he's a gift giver. It's what Jesus does. 31, their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished from their sight. Their eyes had been closed to who he was. And then when the bread was broken and it came across the table and they put it into their mouth, boom, the scales fell off their eyes because what he always wanted to do was make Adam and Eve see by eating from the right tree. And the moment he gave you the right food, the moment he put the right food in front of them, they knew who he was because true revelation comes by consuming who Jesus is, the resurrected Jesus. And as we consume Jesus, revelation happens. Our eyes are open. They said to one another, did our heart not burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Why does the bread work the way that it works? Here's our side excursion to John 6. I know you've been here. I won't stay long, but I want to remind you of this story from the day after the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus says this, John 6, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. So guess what? If you've been drawn to Jesus, God did it. Congratulations. Whoever you are watching, if you've been drawn to the Father, if you've been drawn to Jesus, congratulations, God chose you. That's why you've been drawn. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I'm going to raise him up at the last day. That's a good promise. Hold on to that right there. No matter how bad life gets, Jesus does the raising. He's the resurrector. You're not. You don't save people. You don't even save you. Who do you think you are? He raises you up. You don't raise him up. We always talk about raising the Lord. You know, raise nothing. He raises you. So as he raises you, we learn. It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. 48. I am the bread. Look at this throw in. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness and your fathers are dead. But this is the bread that comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread. 51. So it's such a crucial verse to our Christianity. I am the living bread which come down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the whole wide world. Jesus claims before he even goes to the cross that what I'm about to do at Calvary is not just a mere death. It's the absolute tearing of my flesh for the whole world. And anyone that wants it, anyone my father brings can eat of that and live forever. And not a soul standing there actually lived forever. So we know Jesus wasn't talking about 
living forever in the natural. He was talking about being raised up into the life that only he can give. And how does it start? By consuming who he is. Back to the story, Luke 24. Last three verses. So they rose up that very hour and they returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together and they said, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. And I grabbed that phrase for our title because for me, this whole life of living for Christ has been the things that happen on the road. And Fear, disappointment, yeah. Anger, misunderstanding, yeah, all that. Blinded to some stuff I needed blinded to. Eyes open to some stuff I needed my eyes open to, yeah. One big fat journey, not finished yet. But how vital, how important. Kind of lands you with this idea, this thought. Once their eyes were open, they went home. Because you remember, when they get to Emmaus, that's a seven mile walk, by the way, that took all day. They get there, they eat. And they turn around and go back to Jerusalem. They're so excited because they want to go tell somebody about it. Once their eyes were open, they went home. But you do not really go back as the same person. Once you travel a road with Jesus, you never really go home again. But you do, I put those words backward, but you do come full circle back to innocence and excitement. And you do that over and over again. No one talks about the road to Jerusalem. The Emmaus journey grabs all the headlines, but it's the road back where you realize what has happened to you and where you become a disciple of Christ. It's not the road to Emmaus that you're on right now. You've already met Jesus. It's the road back to Jerusalem you're on right now. What you're on is taking the Jesus you've met back into the world you came out of, and you never really go back the same person but you do come full circle in that you get to re-experience the encounter with Jesus every single time you encounter him in the eyes of your neighbor and every time you take communion. And I'm not just talking about some empty ceremony of blasting your way through something in a church service. I'm talking about the communion of saints being invited to the Lord's table to participate in his broken body because in that broken body, I see everything in me that needs broken and everything in me that could be better. This is me coming full circle. This isn't just me taking the road to Emmaus. This is me taking the road to Emmaus and meeting Jesus and then taking the road to Jerusalem to take Jesus with me. What they did was they took what they found on the road and they took it back to the place they come from. And when they got back to the place they come from, truly, we've seen the Lord. He is risen indeed. And we saw it when we broke bread. And I think it's why the early church demanded that every time they come together, they break bread again. The book, this is what will blow you away in the book of Acts. Is every time they come together, they keep breaking bread, breaking bread, breaking bread. And it's not just they had lunch. They kept coming together, realizing that they together got to participate in who Jesus is and that that was enough to change their lives. And if it changed their lives, it might change the world around them. They bought into that. They truly bought in to that belief. It's why big wasn't in the mentality of the early church. Big didn't mean anything. Get bigger. It was foreign. What needed to happen was I needed to see Jesus on my road. I needed an encounter with him and I can best encounter him in you. 
And so we break bread together every time we come together because we celebrate the broken body of our Lord Jesus. He is, this is, we're celebrating and realizing what happened. And, and my, thought, my thought was the road back's where you realize what happened. And that's how you become a disciple because it's the road back. It's the road after having encountered Jesus that you become a disciple of that Jesus and that you take that Jesus. It's possible that the reason why Paul preaches pure grace and we watch Peter struggle a little bit with pure grace. If you're being honest, when you read the book of Acts and the epistles, Peter struggles a little bit with pure grace. James struggles a little bit with pure grace. Paul doesn't struggle with pure grace. Paul's like a radical of grace. Is it possible that that's because Paul never met the pre-crucified Jesus? Paul only met the resurrected Jesus. Peter, had, Peter and James and John had a Jewish Jesus living in temple worship. And they watched him die. And then they watched him resurrect. And while they were impacted by resurrected Jesus, they also had the living Jesus in the temple in their mind. And sometimes they had a hard time parsing the difference. And then here comes Paul, who never met that Jesus. He just saw the bright shining light on the road to Damascus that said, why do you keep kicking against the thorns? What's wrong with you? Why are you persecuting me? Paul goes, sorry, I'm done. No more of that. I take this Jesus. And he just ran with him. I mean, he was a nut with it. He's like, it's radical. This is the Jesus you need. It's the Jesus I met. It's the Jesus. And it's almost as if God had to use that to be the one that presents a resurrected Christ. Let us be that generation. Let us be a generation of that who encounters him repeatedly on that road of resurrection. And in that encounter, we are disciples of that. You're on the road today already to somewhere. But your encounters with Jesus affect that road and then in turn affect everyone that crosses that path with, path with you. And together, we are encountering him repeatedly over and over and over again. Okay. Let's pray. Let's just let the word settle for a second. Just, just stop, take a moment. Recognize your own encounters with him, whatever they've looked like. Recognize the encounter with him you, you need. Because I think if you'll walk that road, whatever you're in need of, he's going to meet you there. And as we break bread together in a moment, you prepare for him to show you whatever it is that he needs to show you. It's okay to go ahead and ask him. Because as you reason amongst yourselves, you prepare your heart for revelations. Father, I thank you today. There's been a lot that's happened on my road. Some of it was just pure old Paul, just me, just doing stuff on the road. But I've had a lot of encounters. I've got to meet Jesus many times along the way. And, and in those encounters, I've had moments that I needed blinded to stuff, and I've had moments where my eyes were open to stuff. And what, no matter what has happened on the road, the things that have marked me are the moments where I finally got to commune with that broken body of Jesus, where I got to see me crucified in him and him alive in me. And I, I love it. And in that, I've got to relive it that excitement over and over and over again. I think it's happened in this room more than once. So I'm praying for all of us who are in need of another moment of meeting him, that it happen in your way so that you reveal to us what you want us to see about you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.